The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening, Park Church. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Psalm 95. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you that you can use tonight. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that one with you as a gift from Park Church. Or if you're a new believer, if you're new to the faith, new to the Bible, we have some Bibles specifically for you over at the info table that we'd love to give you tonight. Again, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're all well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm looking forward uh, to getting into Psalm 95 with you all. Appreciate you both reading. Uh, it's one of those psalms with like a weird twist. It goes from like really happy to, to not so happy. And so uh, we're going to take some time and look at that turn in the psalm and what, it, what it's doing. But before we do... Um, we're going to pray together. We need God's help desperately in this passage, and so we're going to ask him um, to speak to us. Uh, the Word of God is living. It's active. And even as we read it, we need his Holy Spirit to awaken and to open up our hearts to hear his voice. So let's pray. Um, Jesus, we want to thank you for speaking to us through your Word. Thank you for awakening us to your voice through the power of the Spirit. And we pray right now, God, I pray that you would help us today to hear your voice. That we wouldn't merely engage in an intellectual discipline or some sort of communication event, but that we would listen to your voice, that you would speak to us in power, that you would open up our hearts. Would you give us tender, receptive hearts that would receive your word, that would respond to your word with faith, that would, that would turn to you where you're convicting and challenging us, that we'd experience joy and life and love and rest with you. We need you, Jesus, and I beg you. I just feel aware coming into today that there are men and women in this room that might be where I've felt myself even in this past week drifting, that, that prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God that I love. God, would you arrest our drift? Would you turn our gaze to your life and your love and your grace? And would you help us to come into your presence with joy and thanksgiving? We need you for all of these things. So we pray, not because of our own merit, but because of Christ and his work on our behalf. 
Amen. On this past uh, week, about a week ago, uh, my family took a family trip. I've learned not to call trips to see family vacation. I've learned to call them family trips. Um, we took a family trip, and it was, it was excellent. It was an excellent family trip. It really was um, a good time with family and connecting. Um, but one of the things I love about family trips to Kansas City, which is where we're from, is, is come on. Shout out. Um, Kansas City's great. One of the things I love about the trip is the drive across I-70. You're like, come on. No, it's true. I love it. I love it. Because like uh, in the midst of a, like a hustle bustle world and busyness and chaos, on this drive to Kansas City, you literally don't have to think about anything. Like you just get in the car, you set the cruise control, you lower the steering wheel so your knee can kind of hit it, you know? <laughs> And just like, just take it easy for eight, nine hours. You know, just take it easy, get on I-70. And it's restful, it's wonderful. You know, you can play good music. You put on Waze, on the, the Waze app, you know. Like, not Google Maps, right? Not Apple Maps. You got to use Waze because, because Waze will tell you like where potholes are and it'll tell you where police officers are so you can pray for them as you go by. And it's, <laughs> it's great. It's a great, it's a great reminder to pray. Love it. So you put on Waze and you just cruise and you don't have to think about anything. What's, what's incredible to me is like you get on I-70 and you head west in like eight hours, you're going to end up in Denver. You're just going to. There's no weird turns, nothing weird. You're going to hit Denver. You could go on autopilot, right? You can go on default without even thinking about it, without paying any attention. You set out on your journey and you're going to end up in Denver. You're going to end up where you're wanting to go. The issue is life isn't like that. Life's not like that. Life's not like just kind of like set out on a journey. Don't pay attention. Don't engage your mind. Don't engage your heart. Just go on autopilot. Just default and you're going to end up where you want to go. Life isn't like that. The autopilot of our hearts are prone to wander. We actually have in our hearts an inclination not to, not to pursue what we were made for, but to turn away from the destination that our hearts, our souls were designed for. That you can't put autopilot on and cruise through life and think you're going to end up where you want to go. You will drift. And we're all prone to drift. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to turn. And we're turning from the very essence of what we were made for, to find joy and life and rest and hope and acceptance and grace and healing in the presence of God. It's what you're made for. Every human being was made for it. Whether or not you'd call yourself a Christian or, or you'd say, I'm engaging in Christianity or I'm just kind of like thinking about it or I'm not sure. Every human being was made to find joy, life, rest. All the things that humans tend to love, justice, peace, um, just kind of like this flourishing life, you're made to find it in the presence of God. But as a human being, since the beginning of time, our hearts have been prone to wander. Our hearts have been inclined to turn away. And Psalm 95 is bringing us into this, this tension. That there is at the core of Psalm 95 an invitation to experience joy and life and reverence and awe and worship in the presence of God. And there is also in Psalm 95 this very clear indicator that our hearts are not prone to head that way by default, but our hearts are prone to turn away. And that's why Psalm 95 in the middle of it has this very sobering, very powerful, very necessary warning for you to hear today. Today, you need this warning. I need this warning today. And so at the core of the psalm is, is really this call to 
pay attention. It's to pay attention. To pay attention to the voice of God as the only voice that will lead you to joy. The only voice that will lead you to love. The only voice that will lead you to rest. The only voice that will lead you to peace. To pay attention to the voice of God. And the whole psalm is kind of broken up in a really, really easy structure, really clear structure. It's like even as you're hearing it read over you, you feel the tone shift in the middle of the psalm at the end of verse 7, where the first half of the psalm is an invitation to come, experience joy. And the last half of the psalm is a warning to the wandering hearts. So an invitation to come experience joy and then a warning to the wandering hearts. And so we're going to look at it in those two pieces. I want you to keep your Bible open. If you don't have one again, there's one right in front of you. Um, We'd love to uh, just have you spend some time keeping that word open. We want you to see that these things are in the word of God. And so look with me at Psalm 95. Now we're going to look at verse 1, 2, and 6 for a second. And look at this invitation. The invitation to joy. It's an invitation to joy. It's an invitation to wonder. It's an invitation to worship. O come, the psalmist says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now jump down to verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Um, the repetition of this phrase, this, this invitation to come, to come into the presence of God, it is an invitation to come and to worship him in his sanctuary, in the temple. So in the Old Testament times, this would be an invitation. It was a corporate song by the people of Israel inviting them in this place of corporate worship to come into the presence of God with joy, with wonder, with awe, with humility, with reverence, and to experience the, the joyful, powerful, humbling presence of God. It's an invitation. It's interesting. The three phrases, O come in verse 1, O come in verse 2, come in verse 6, are actually all three different Hebrew phrases. None of them are the same word. They're three different Hebrew phrases, all kind of like expressing a broad sense, a broad call to come, a a very intimate um, invitation to come into the presence of God before the face of God, to actually run into his presence, to go into his presence. It's this like very clear sense that the psalm is calling us, and through the psalm we call one another, Let's go to God together. Let's let's go to him. Let's run to him. Let's run towards him and come into his presence where there is this experience of joy, wonder. Just even looking at the emotions around the invitation. You have phrases like joyful noise, talking about let us sing to the Lord. Let us come with thanksgiving. Let us come with songs of praise. Like all of these phrases that there's an experience of coming into the presence of God that ought to be marked by joy. But a lot of times when you think about like uh, what it means to be a Christian, we can experience the, the invitation to come as, as maybe a burden, an obligatory kind of like action, a duty that we have to spend time, we need to wake up tomorrow and spend time with Jesus and I'm supposed to do that because I'm a Christian or somebody told me or I feel, and, and instead of this like invitation to joy, an invitation to wonder, or even in the last half uh, in verse six, you see this kind of invitation, not just the Thanksgiving, but these these images and these words of worship and humilities. Come, let us worship. Which the Hebrew word for worship is about laying on your face. Laying prostrate before God. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Like if, if you came into the sanctuary today and people were, you know, just like laying like this, would you feel weird? 
<laughs> do you feel weird right now? <laughs> I do. I feel really weird. Uh, um, why, why, though? Why? Is it, it's because we don't. It's like, well, that must, be a, that must be a posture of the heart. Well, it feels like a posture of the body. Uh, kneel, bow down. Like there's something about the joy of God. There's something about the presence of God that ought to lead to a visceral and emotional experience of joy, of thanksgiving, of loud shouts of praise, of humility and reverence and awe. Uh, we've had uh, one of our pastors, Joel Olympic, who's talked a lot about just the physical body and posture and worship and how uh, for some people it's like, you know, feel like we can't move. Like one of our elders talks about when somebody would raise a hand at his church, it'd be like they'd pause the service and be like, yeah, do you have a question? You know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I, th- I grew up in a similar context where it's like, just like bodies shouldn't be engaged. But sometimes our body isn't responding to joy. Sometimes we actually engage our body in order to engage our hearts with joy. Like sometimes posture does something to your body. Like sometimes when I kneel to pray, I'm not kneeling because I feel desperate. I'm kneeling because I know that I am. And it just helps my heart get in a posture of like dependence and need. And I remember my place before him that I, that I have nothing that I could claim of myself. I come in need of mercy and grace. I'm coming before the throne of God, the Lord, our maker. And it's worthy to kneel. And sometimes the, the posture itself is a way we engage our hearts, but we can't coerce emotions. We can't like generate, you can't like self-generate emotions. It's like, well, have Thanksgiving, have joy. You're like, but I don't feel joy. We'll try harder to feel joy. That's, that's not the way it works. And the psalm doesn't do that either. It's not like be joyful, be joyful. Come on, more joyful. It actually gives us reasons. It gives us grounds. Anytime you see the word for in the biblical text or any type of written argument. Four is indicating a reason or a ground for something. So it's calling us to come. It's this invitation to experience joy and humility and awe in the presence of God, but then it gives reasons. Look at verse three. For Yahweh is a great God. He is a great God and a great king above all gods. You're like, wait, isn't Christianity a monotheistic religion? Like, who are these gods? Well, even in the ancient time, everything that was seen as like sources of life, they attributed to everything that they thought could give life some sort of deity. But we do the same thing. These are spiritual powers that actually are active in this world. There are real spiritual powers that are enticing your heart to give allegiance to not the one true creator of heaven and earth, but to give allegiance to something else aside from him so that that God or that substance or that thing that you're coming to can give you life. So a God, a little g God in a biblical day or any God is something that you believe can give and take away life. Something you believe that has the power to give and to take away life. Not necessarily life and death life, though that would be included, but also just like the things that you think actually give meaningful life. So if you worship acceptance, and you might come to friends and to family, which is this God-given thing to find acceptance because you so desperately want to be accepted that you've now come to a created thing to give you something you were designed to find in God, or you want a sense of purpose and and success, and so you go to your career, and you're going to your career because you believe the career is going to give you the sense of purpose and achievement and worth, 
or you go to sexuality, or you go to food, or you go to um, any number of things that our hearts can run towards, even just this desire for comfort or recreation and escape, we run to these things because we think they will give us life. And they won't, but they are something that are designed by God. That's why it's interesting. He's above all gods. What it's saying is all of these other things we go to, he's above them all. He's supreme over them all. He's created them all. He's designed them all to give us tastes of, foretastes of, glimpses of his joy, his presence, his love, his acceptance, his peace, his rest. Everything in creation that gives you this sense of joy was designed by God to exist under his supremacy so that through these things we get tastes of what intimacy with him is like, what, about what like being loved by him is like, about what rest in his care and in his sovereign providence over the world, what that's like. We get to experience these things in the world, and he is above all. And in the text, it's going to talk about him as creator. He's the creator of all of these things. Him as redeemer, the one who, even when our hearts run in the wrong direction, he's the one who rescues us from that plight, rescues us from our wandering. And then in verse 6 and 7, it talks about him not only as the creator and the redeemer, but him as a shepherd. And I think this is, it's interesting to me, when it talks about him as a shepherd, look at this in verse uh, 7. It says, for he is our God. It's, just, it's a personal claim. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Um, the image is of a shepherd who knows you. That he knows you. This maker, this creator of heaven and earth, a creator who is right now holding the stars in place. He is sovereign over the planets. He is sovereign over everything that is massive in our solar system and our galaxy and the universe. And he's sovereign over every molecule and every atom. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the present. He's sovereign over the future. That sovereign creator God knows you and cares about you. Like a shepherd who has this incredibly massive flock, but he knows them all by name. And when we wander, and Lord, we wander, when we wander, he pays attention. He's paying attention to you. He's a shepherd who will pursue the lost sheep, who cares for and who provides and who leads us beside still waters and who chases us down in our wandering, fickle hearts. He's a shepherd who loves us. And it's this this dynamic of him being the creator God who knows you, who cares about you, who loves you, that leads to this sort of awe. Like the creator of the universe cares about you. Like that, that's, that's got to make you like worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, your maker, because he cares about you. Like today... I don't know where you are on your journey. You've been on autopilot and it's, and it's maybe taking you farther away from him than you even realize right now. Your autopilot, your default, you've drifted with complacency. Maybe it's sinful desires. Maybe it's different things. And, and your heart has drifted and the Lord cares about you as a shepherd who would chase down a wandering sheep. And he's wanting to do that today. And this text shows us that with a lot of clarity and a lot of sobriety, where we see this, not just this invitation to joy, but this warning, a warning to our wandering heart.
Um, I want you to see it in the passage again. We're going to look at the last part of verse 7. We'll read a couple of verses here. Look at what it says. There's this, there's this very abrupt tone shift of joy, praise, loud shouts, clapping, worship. And then today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. So notice loathed, right? Not like I loathe you so much, you know, like um, I loathe, disgusted. It would be a, an appropriate translation. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. Like, well, is that, that's the God of the Old Testament. Well, well, no, it's the God, the one, who's unchanging. Like, but isn't God a God of love? Oh, totally. What told, what told you that? This book, it did. For John 4 says, God is love. In this same book, that God who is love said, for 40 years, they despised me. They despise me. Well, what would, what would evoke that sort of a, a passionate, very kind of like graphic and very um, strong language from the Lord? It was the fact that they had seen, the people of Israel had seen him do powerful, powerful things. And yet in the face of powerful act after powerful act after powerful act, they persisted in their grumbling and complaining towards him and in their distrust of his voice. And for him, the 40 years, the persistency of that resistance evoked not just kind of a sense of disgust, but he said, therefore, I, I told them in my wrath, you will not enter my rest. So what's going on here? It's actually bringing us into a story that we've been looking at for the past several months in Exodus. So Meribah and Massa, if you remember them, from, they're from Exodus 17. They're going to show up again in Deuteronomy chapter, or Numbers chapter 20. But they are places where the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they were struggling to find water. And in the place of not being able to find water, instead of coming to God in dependence and crying out for him to provide for them, they began to doubt God. They began to kind of um, criticize Moses, criticize God himself, and began to say, we should have stayed in Egypt. So if you remember, they were captives in Egypt. They were experiencing brokenness. They were in this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of brokenness, where they were captives to, their, to this um, tyrannical regime. These tyrannical leaders that were destroying their lives and even their own hearts were worshiping the gods of Egypt, and it was absolutely destroying them. And so they cried out to God for deliverance. After 400 years in slavery and captivity, they cried out to God in deliverance, and God powerfully intervened. He saved them. He showed them power after power, wonder after wonder. After 10 wondrous acts of God, he rescued them from Egypt, brought them through the waters, and is leading them to this promise, this promise that they would enter into a place where they would experience flourishing life in his presence. And what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, and that this journey through the wilderness was bringing them to a place where they would experience joy and rest and peace and safety and flourishing life. The Bible word there is shalom, this peace with God, peace with one another, peace in the world. And in that kind of intermediate space between redemption and the fulfillment of the promise, 
their hearts grew hard toward God. In this space of experiencing deliverance and freedom and love and rescue, and they go out into the wilderness, and there's a promise that this is headed somewhere. The journey is headed to a destination. But on the journey, on the journey, in the midst of times that were challenging and difficult, where they should have come into his presence with dependence, Lord, we need you. Lord, Lord, you rescued us. You showed us wonder after wonder after wonder. And we need water desperately. We don't feel like we can even live without water. We, we need you, God. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. And we know that you're powerful because you did these things to, to create us and to redeem us. And so would you do it again? Show us your power again. Provide for us again. Care for us again. That would be a posture of belief. But what their heart did was we should have just stayed in Egypt. It'd be better to be back in Egypt with those other gods than to be with God in the wilderness. And what they began to do is they did not trust in the promise. They did not hold fast to their original confidence that Lord, the Lord is leading them to a promised land. They did not hold fast firm to the end. And they stumbled and they fell in the wilderness. And before we get all kind of angsty and how could they do that after everything he did, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. God has shown us his love and his grace, and he's shown us it most powerfully in the cross of Jesus, where Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his life to forgive us and to cleanse us and to wash us and to give us his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own faithfulness, and to give us his Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection to give us joy in this life. And yet, when things get difficult, we start turning back to the gods we worshiped before. They're like, well, what do you mean? I mean, we turn back to trying to find life in the, like, mind-numbing entertainment. We find rest just by numbing ourselves. We, we turn back to trying to find love in relationships who are just desperate for acceptance. We turn back to try to find meaning and significance through our career achievements. And, and we keep, instead of, like, when stuff gets difficult, we just find ourselves just prone to wander their hearts turn away again to come back to these things that could never give us life, that weren't giving us life, the things that we needed to be saved from in the first place because we think that that will be better than experiencing the challenges of the wilderness. And it won't. It won't. And the issue here isn't behavior. Like it's really clear in the passage that the issue is an issue of the heart and it is out of the heart from which all behavior flows. Look at the passage, um, look at Verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. Or again at verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. That at the core of this is an issue of the heart. It's not first and foremost behavior. Behavior is flowing from something inside. And so like behind this whole thing is this call to actually listen to and to trust the voice of God. Um, in, in verse 7, the last part of verse 7 when it says, um, if you hear his voice. The word hear is this Hebrew word shema. Okay, shema is a, it's a popular Hebrew word. It's a part of this like a prayer, a Hebrew prayer, very popular prayer in Deuteronomy 6 called the shema, which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's this call to listen to the voice of God. And the Hebrew word doesn't just mean like auditory, like engagement. It is not just hearing words. It's actually believing and responding. There's no Hebrew word for obey. The Hebrew word for obey is shema, hear, listen. And it brings us into this core struggle of what it means to be human. 
Um, In the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning, God had designed humanity to experience life with him. We talk about this all the time because it is paradigmatic. It is sort of the framework through which you ought to think about life. God has created this world, and he gives people instructions. He gives humanity instructions to enjoy life with him. And he says, all of this is for you. Eat it all. Enjoy it all. Enjoy my creation. Enjoy my presence. Like, enjoy this flourishing garden. If you want to experience life, enjoy these things that I've created for you to enjoy. Only do not eat of this one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, Genesis 2 says, you will surely die. If you eat of the fruit of this one tree, and it's like, what's significant about that tree? That tree, the the knowledge of good and evil, signifies a sense that we're not going to trust the voice of God to tell us what's good and where life is found. We're going to take that responsibility on our own, and we're going to be autonomous, self-determined people that make our own way through this world. And so what we've done in that moment is we've turned from the voice of God, and we've begun to trust a competing voice. A competing voice. And the voice might be a voice of a friend. It might be a value system around you. It might be internal desires. But there's competing voices that are drawing you away from God. And this passage in in Psalm 95 is calling us in that place of wandering. It's warning us, if we still hear his voice, don't keep hardening your heart. It's not saying God loves people who are perfect. It's saying listen to the voice and turn. Listen to the voice and turn. And it's this call that's given with incredible urgency. I don't think there's been, there have been few passages in my own life that have been so significant for me when I'm struggling with like deep sin. As Psalm 95, and then Hebrews 3, which quotes Psalm 95. And there's been few passages in my, in my kind of like pastoral experience that have been so significant as I'm walking through life with people who are walking through some very difficult and dark valleys. That's Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3. I want you to turn to Hebrews 3. We're going to look at it for a moment. We'll close with Hebrews 3. But in Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 95, and he applies it to us today. Hebrews is towards the tail end of your Bible, um, a few books before Revelation. It's a few pages. It's like in the last 20th, maybe. That's my, that's my, my guess. Hebrews chapter 3. So the author of Hebrews is, is writing a letter to a group of people who have begun to follow Jesus, predominantly Jewish people, who had begun to follow Jesus, and in the face of following Jesus, things got tough. They were betrayed and abandoned by families. Uh, bosses and employers would fire them, would ridicule them, would persecute them. The sort of Roman Empire was growing in its antagonism towards Christianity in the sort of like 60 to 65 AD area. And you were experiencing more and more opposition. And in light of the opposition, some of the Jewish followers of Jesus, Christians, were contemplating turning away from Jesus to go back to kind of religious systems, like the religious systems of Judaism, because life was just easier. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage them not to turn away. And he sees Psalm 95 as a very apropos passage for them. And look at what it says. He quotes Psalm 95, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And I want you to jump down to verse 12. And then he's going to apply this. And he's going to hone in on the word today. 
But let's look at verse 12. It says, take care, brothers and sisters. Take care. That's just like be on guard. It's a warning. It's just a very powerful, like, watch out phrase. Watch out. Pay attention. Radar up. Be vigilant. Like, pay attention, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you, not just you individually, but your friends and your co-workers and others around you, other followers of Jesus, watch out, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's talking to people that are professing Christians. An evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. So what should you do if you see that? Well, exhort one another, encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. Today is called today and tomorrow will be called today tomorrow, right? Right? Every day. Every day. That we have to be watching out for our own hearts and the hearts of those around us. Why? What do we have to be watching out for? It says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin the deceitfulness of sin, that there are desires in your heart that are lies. There are lies active in your heart that are tempting you to turn away from God, but it doesn't, it's not going to feel like this kind of like blatant rebellion. It's going to feel like something compelling. That's what lies are. Lies are supposed to be compelling. Lies are supposed to be enticing. Lies are supposed to trick you. Lies are supposed to be like, this felt right. Let's it's a lie. It was a deceptive power of sin. And when you listen to the deceptive power of sin, something happens to your heart. Your heart, when you reject the voice of God and the call of God, not to do right, do right, do right, but to come to me, come to me, come to me. That's the voice of God. Come to me for joy. Come to me for life. Come to me for love. Come to me for rest. Come to me for pleasure. Come to me for peace. And we say, actually, there's something else that looks good over here. And we start going. And every time we reject the voice of God, something is happening to your heart. Your heart is is getting more dull. Your heart is getting less receptive. Your heart is getting harder. And the more you suppress the voice, the harder it gets to hear the voice, which is why the author says, today, if you hear him today, I'm not, I'm talking to you all now, if you hear him today, if you see in your heart these inclinations to turn from him, this unconfessed sin, this faithlessness that's just you're finding yourself wandering, your life's been on autopilot, and you've been wandering, and you're, you're engaged in things that like maybe you three years ago would have never thought you would have been engaged in. Your heart's, your heart's enticed by things that that's maybe like if you were honest, like you recognize there's been a drift you're less excited to be with Jesus. You're less hungry for his presence and for his love. And so and there's this drift. And it's saying, if you hear his voice, that is the Holy Spirit crying out to you, saying, today, if you hear him, if you hear him, don't harden your heart. Listen to his voice. Heed his voice. Shema his voice and turn to him because he has invited you to come to joy. He has invited you into his presence. He's invited you into his love. And we can kind of like walk through these moments and we distract ourselves and we numb ourselves and we trick ourselves and we deceive ourselves and we listen to these lies. And little by little, we have drifted so far. And the danger is there might be a day when you no longer hear his voice. Like, whoa. What about perseverance of the saints? If you're a theology person. Or, or what about once saved, always saved? Or what about eternal security? So the, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is like a, a held biblical doctrine that I love, isn't saying that if you prayed a prayer and you thought you were a Christian when you were younger, you will definitely be one later. It's not saying if you had some experience when you were younger, that experience is like going to make you... 
The, the doctrine is that those who are in Christ are his forever. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Well, how do you know if you're in Christ? You persevere to the end. You hear his voice. When the warning comes, it hits you. Like right now, there's conviction in your heart. And it's the very evidence of conviction, the very presence of conviction, like I have been wondering. That's evidence of his love for you, his commitment to you. But if you harden your heart, and you harden your heart, and you harden your heart, and you do not hold fast to your trust in him, there might be a day you don't hear his voice anymore, and you fall away from the living God. The faith you thought you had, you didn't. First John talks about this. They, they went out. There are people that went out from us. And the fact that they went out from us means they were never of us because had they been of us, they would have never gone out from us. And so the core of the message is watch out. Your life is at stake. Your spiritual life is at stake. But the positive motivation is right there in verse 14. And it's beautiful. For we have come to share in Christ to share in Christ, to share in his love, God's pleasure over his son, who he said, this is my beloved son, and I'm pleased with him, and, and he is the heir of the world, and all of my joy, all of my love. In fact, the world itself is his, and you get to share in Christ. We get to share in Christ if, if we hold, look at, the, look at what it says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the warning in Psalm 95, and the warning in Hebrews 3 exists to help you do it. It exists to help you not let go. It exists to help you right now cue your radar and be like, oh, I have been drifting. And to stop what you're doing today and to engage with Jesus today and to listen to his voice who's invited you, come. And the one who's invited you to come, this Jesus, is not merely a good shepherd who cares for his sheep and provides for his sheep, but he's a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. In fact, he was the Lamb of God. And though he never wandered from God's love, though he never disobeyed God, no, he, he never rejected the voice of God, he was slain, that this Lamb was sacrificed to pay our debt, to pay the penalty for our sin, so that when we return to God, we don't return with condemnation, we don't return with shame, we don't return with guilt, we actually return as those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And we get to come into his presence with joy. We get to enter his presence with thanksgiving. We get to come in and experience his love. And we get to bow before him with this awe and this wonder because our God, the creator of the universe, laid down his life to show you his love. And even today, he's calling you. He's calling you, come to me for joy. Come to me for rest. Come to me for security. Come to me for peace. Come to me for purpose. Come to me for identity. Come to me for all the things your heart wants. Come to me and live. Let's pray. And Jesus, we do come right now. And I um, just want to encourage, encourage you all in the room, even now, the propensity, even just because of like our default mode, is to start disengaging. And I want to beg of you to not disengage your heart right now, that you would engage your heart. And so, Holy Spirit, I, I want to ask right now that you would speak with power to every single heart in the room, that your voice would cry out to every heart in the room, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction, 
Not that would lead to condemnation, but conviction that would lead to turning, a turning to, to you for love and for cleansing. And so would you speak right now to those in this room? And friend, I want to ask you to engage with this question. Um, where is your heart drifting? Just to be honest with yourself. What are the desires that, that if you could just kind of step back and you could kind of look at your life as an observer, you'd be like, oh, I've been listening to lies. I've wondered. Today, if you hear his voice, even if there's this desire, I want to hear his voice, that's evidence of his spirit at work. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But bring these things to him. For he said, if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive you of your sins, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I want to encourage you in these moments to take these areas of wondering and just to confess, which is just a, a Christian-y word, just being honest about where your heart's been. Being honest with where your heart has turned. And come to Jesus and ask him, just express that to him and ask him for forgiveness, ask him for grace, ask him for strength to turn and know that he delights to show you his love. He delights to show you his grace. So take a moment even now to spend with Jesus. Father, would you please um, mercifully keep crying out? Uh, even right now, I just feel like there's some internal wars happening for some. That some, somehow turning to you means something significant for some people here. Turning away from lies means something significant. Maybe it's humbling. Maybe a sense of shame. 
fear. Jesus, would you remind them of your love, that you're not a God who heaps on shame, but you're a God who cleanses shame. There's no other way to life except to turn. I desperately want to cross the finish line personally. And I want to cross the finish line with this church. I want us to share in Christ and to hold our original confidence firm all the way to the end. And so, Holy Spirit, would you please do a miraculous work You'd help us to not be like the Israelites and Meribah and Massa, but that we'd be a people that by your spirit hear your voice and hold fast to Christ. So pour out your grace on us, even as we celebrate your table, even as we celebrate communion. May this be a time of turning, of a, of a turning to you as we celebrate the bread and we celebrate the wine and we remember your broken body and your shed blood. Would this be a time for us of coming to you, Jesus, saying it's you. You are the Savior. You are the Creator. You are the Sustainer. You are the Lord. There is no life apart from you. Just think of the disciples saying to your question, are you going to turn away from me too? And they say, where else would we go? You have the words of life. So help us, help us now, in Christ's name, amen.